Welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This time we're going to be talking about another side of Bob Dylan. This one was his fourth album, released in August 1964 and recorded in one session in June of the same year. So Rich, uh, how familiar with this record were you before we started listening to it this week? Well, it's an interesting one, this, because I would say that I've been far more familiar with the songs on this from covers than from the Bob Dylan originals. Um, and in, largely, actually, this record has kind of passed me by. I mean, I've, I've dipped in and dipped out of it, but there's a number of the songs, obviously, Chimes of Freedom and All I Really Want to Do, um, I learned through the birds. And so it almost came as a little bit of a surprise, actually, hearing Bob Dylan do them for the first time in, in what was a very different way, a much rougher way, a far less sanitised way, a less kind of... Um, polished harmony way than the birds did and then the other one uh, my grandmother had uh, an old Johnny Cash record I guess from the late 1960s and he does a a version of uh, It Ain't Me Babe on that uh, which is brilliant but totally totally different to to what you hear on on this it's kind of a country two-step it's got harmonica on it and then it's got June June Carter singing the harmonies and I loved it as a child but I had no idea it was a Bob Dylan song and then so listening to this this time round putting all the pieces together it actually felt like kind of rediscovering those songs in many respects so uh, so yeah that's kind of my story how about you Mark how did you come to this one similarly in a way um, so between discovering Bob Dylan having that great epiphany and coming to this album I'd definitely gotten into the birds I, I think it was just the the record full flight which was for the kind of retrospective greatest hits or uh, even singles collected I'm not sure now but certainly it had you know all their uh, most famous Dylan covers on it and particularly it, the one that really grabbed me was my back pages and I, I did a little bit of um, teenage logic and thought well I love the birds version of Mr Tambourine Man but I much prefer Bob Dylan's version so if I really like the Birds version of My Back Pages, I'm going to absolutely love Bob Dylan's version of My Back Pages. <laughs> so at some point I picked up another side, probably from the library uh, in, the, in the usual way in those days. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't like it as much. I, I didn't like that song as much as I liked the Birds version, which I don't know now. I was probably a little bit unfair. I was much more of a kind of uh, indie, poppy sort of kid than the, the, uh, the grizzled old man I've become. So that was probably... A little bit unfair, but nevertheless, that was my impression. So that coloured the album for me for quite a few years. I uh, I liked it, but I never quite got over that disappointment. But yeah, it was one of the ones I came to relatively early, but it probably reevaluated it more than some others over the years. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you have to, certainly if you're, you're going at it this way around, and if you've listened to the birds beforehand, I think you've kind of got to work at this one a little bit more. And I, I totally get it as well, because when you're looking at... I had that that singles collection um, by the birds. I, fig- I think it was called the singles collection, but they look really, really cool on the cover of it. And I think as a kind of indie kid in the in the kind of mid late nineties, you're looking at that thinking, yeah, this is the this is the kind of band I, I I want to be in. And so I think this is this is a more, I suppose, a record that works better for a slightly more mature listener, if that makes sense. If I've become a mature listener, I'm not. <laughs> I'm still trying, still working on that one. Yeah, I've become mature and I'm still listening, but I don't know if that makes me a mature listener. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I suppose you're, you're right, and the birds were incredibly cool, and particularly on the cover of that album, if, if I remember. Um, I remember being very impressed by the whole package. 
But yeah, so I guess that's probably a good place to start. We've had big songs on the previous albums, obviously, that were covered a lot, going right yeah. the way back to Blowing in the Wind. But this one in particular, it was a really rich vein of, uh, of uh, cover versions, wasn't it? I think The Birds covered four of the songs on this album. And of course, Mr. Tambourine Man was written around this time, wasn't it? I'm not, I'm not sure if it was actually recorded at the session. I, my understanding is that he'd written it before this. He'd actually written it before some of the stuff that featured on this, but for whatever reason, he, he didn't record it on this. But it's probably just as well. I mean, it's probably just as well that he was around at that time, because otherwise I don't think the birds would have existed. I mean, they wouldn't have any <laughs> <Yeah>. songs. Like <laughs> but yeah, it, it's... I mean, yeah, he obviously didn't put Mr. Tambourine Man on this one, and which is an interesting choice, really. But I guess, I guess maybe, maybe he felt it was, you know, he was still kind of in transition as a writer, maybe, or maybe it was that he was still kind of working with different versions of it. Um, I mean, that's kind of just speculation, isn't it? I don't know if there's a story behind that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I did read, I think that he wrote Mr. Tambourine Man around the same time as Chimes of Freedom. Uh, certainly an early draft of it and you can see some of the um, same imagery on it can't you uh, well I suppose not the same imagery but the same sort of method and approach to uh, to creating the images on on both of those songs yeah who knows why he didn't put it on there but he he did also of course leave off a couple of my absolute favorite songs of a period uh, so what was it I'll keep it with mine was written around this time wasn't it and mama you've been on my mind as well yeah and I mean mama you've been on my mind is is an outstanding song I mean I Again, we're talking about cover versions here, really. The the Rod Stewart version, arguably, probably the definitive version. I mean, this is back when Rod Stewart was really cool. Pretty much anything up to about 1974, Rod Stewart was properly cool. And then and then suddenly he wasn't. Um, but yeah, the, the version of Mummy You've Been On My Mind is, is, is brilliant. It, it kind of surprises me, but Bob Dylan does this so much. Leaves great songs off albums, doesn't he? I mean, it's almost like a, seemingly a hobby of his, basically. I was thinking about this though, listening to it a lot this week, this record. I've already mentioned this idea of him being in, in transition, but I mean, it's not recorded a very long time after the previous album. It's not recorded a very long time after um, the times they are changing. And yet I'd argue, and I don't know if you, you agree with this, this seems almost like a, a different guy. I mean, yes, okay, so he's got the harmonica. Yes, he's got the guitar and he's doing... The majority, well, he's doing all of these songs solo, isn't he? But it feels so different. I mean, what do, what do you reckon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We talked last time, didn't we, about the way he his, his humour was so totally lacking on Times We Are Changing. And I think you made the point when we were chatting before that... Uh, or was it on the last podcast? I can't remember. But you were saying that you get, you get, you get all, I wanna, all I really want to do coming up straight away. It really shows that he's, he's going in a totally different direction. Yes, indeed. Uh, but then... I, I don't know if I was going a little bit far when I was listening this week, but I tried to count how many times he laughs on the album. And I think he does, I think he laughs three times, or at least in three different songs. There's not a lot of laughing going on in the times we are changing, as I recall. Yeah, it's kind of like Les Mis without the jokes, isn't it? Uh, times they are changing. But um, yeah, it, it is. It's amazing, isn't it? There, there is quite a lot of laughter on this. It's sort of a quite a cavalier attitude towards recording, I suppose. I mean, everything feels very, very crafted on the times they are changing. And yet all of a sudden you've got this, I mean, it's really, uh, it's quite rough. It almost feels a bit slapdash in places. It's brilliant on this, on, on this record, but yeah, like I love that idea that he's left, that he's left the laughter in. Yeah, just what you were saying there about the fact that the performances still come across uh, really, they're still really strong 
for the most part, despite the fact that they're all done in one night. I mean, he must have been knackered, mustn't he, by the end of it? Although he, he, was, he was evidently um, supported in some way, wasn't he? Uh, what were you telling me earlier? About oh, yeah, well, the, the, the rumour the rumor is that he'd gone through a couple of, of bottles of Beaujolais uh, during the recording of, of this. I mean, I don't know how long the session was, or indeed if it was the new Beaujolais or like last, uh, last season <laughs> vintage, as it were, whether or not that would make a difference. But um, yeah, I mean, he must have been absolutely exhausted after this. I mean, because this, of course, is back in the day when it was pretty rare to just punch in a mistake on a song. It was much more likely that a producer would say, actually, you pop the mic there, back to the start, redo it. So, I mean, there's going to be multiple takes, obviously, of each of these mm. songs. And, and the fact that he's kind of ploughed through is pretty remarkable. I mean, it, it kind of explains the roughness and the raggedness, but I think it's also a very deliberate ploy that he's, he's left in some of the laughter and that he's left in the, the or that the humour's kind of come back. And, when with the kind of return of this humor i mean it really does it kind of paves the way for what what happened next i mean this is a this is a, an album that feels a bit like a the, the bridging of a gap really you've got the very serious politicized political troubadour and then all of a sudden i mean it's easy in hindsight uh, in, in retrospect to kind of see where he was going but it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When when you listen to this, you can. It's not a, such a great leap to think, ah, he's going to electrify soon. Well, yeah, I was thinking about that, and I, I think that's definitely right. Certainly, I felt that listening back. But I do wonder how much of that is what we see in hindsight. Impossible to know, of course, isn't it? But it, this album, I think, really suffers from the perception that it's a transitional album because it's seen as a bridge and people look at it in the way that you look at bridges as, uh, you know, uh, something that joins two other much more important things together. And I think that's probably a bit unfair. I, and I'm only saying that now, having listened to it a lot over the last couple of weeks, because I probably would have agreed with that early previously. But yeah, I, the humour coming back is obviously a really big deal. But he'd had that before, hadn't he? On his even on his first record, and and evidently in his live performances, it was a it was a big part of his 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 shtick. It's that it's that um, evolution of his of his lyricism, isn't it? That's that's the the bridge between this and what we see flowering on bringing it all back home. And as you say, the 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 way that all of these songs lend themselves to electrification so easily, obviously immediately leads you to think, well, okay, he's moving on to to that phase next, but. I don't know how, how, how obvious that would have been at the time, uh, because, I mean, people were still, he was still very much getting scolded, wasn't he, by some sections of his fan base for abandoning the political stuff and for putting in too much personal stuff, too much jovial stuff. And I, I think he was perhaps caught a little bit between that and, on the other hand, the kind of the, the, new, the new hipsters, not quite ready to get fully on board because he was still seen as a folk singer, first and foremost. But I don't know, what do you reckon about that? It's an interesting one because, I mean, no one was crying Judas at him for, for this record, for example. So he's clearly not decamped from the, the, the sort of folk troubadour tradition that much. But at the same time, it's, I mean, this isn't really a political album. I, at least I don't think it's a political album. I think that there's huge amounts of it that are very, very ambiguous, actually. I mean, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to tell you what a lot of these songs are about. When sort of political ideas are mentioned. I mean, you've got the idea of Cuba and Fidel Castro and I like his beard, et cetera, et cetera. But that's much more in the guise of a humorous song, isn't it? That's not, that's certainly not North Country Blues or Hattie Carroll. It's far more kind of flippant and, uh, and, and I think poking fun. And, and 
And so, yeah, I think anyone who, from the folk fraternity that kind of held him up as this talismanic-like figure who was going to be, well, yeah, he's going to tell us, uh, tell us what to think. He's going to be the person that we can kind of hang all our protest movement on. I can understand why they'd have been a bit, a bit miffed and a bit peeved at this album because it's just not as, it's just not as accessible in that respect, is it? There's a lot more where I, I think he's, he's not got a kind of uh, consistent message going right the way through this. I think he, he's kind of taking from, taking from different kind of styles and genres and ideas. But I mean, you do, there's quite a range of, of material on this, isn't there? I mean, you've got, You've got songs that essentially sound like electrified Dylan. I mean, we obviously have the benefit of being able to know this now. They sound like electrified Dylan without the backbeat. Then you've got some very kind of traditional folksy stuff on this, of course. I mean, To Ramona is just a beautiful song. You've got the far more lyrical things like Chimes of Freedom that we've already mentioned. And then you've got just some quite odd songs, really. I mean, you... He plays the piano, doesn't he? Which uh, I forget now which song it was. Uh, Black Crow Blues, right? That's right, yeah. So, I mean, again, that, that's another sort of departure. It's almost like he's, yeah, let's, let's, have a, let's have a play on the piano. Okay, I'll drink a bit more Beaujolais, go and play a bit of harmonica, have another glass, <laughs> go back and play some guitar. Now I'm a kind of uh, balladeer. Oh, now I'm a uh, sort of prototype rock and roller. Oh, now I'm going to pretend to be a little bit Arthur Rambo, uh, Verlaine kind of style with this lyricism. So it's kind of all over the shop, isn't it? But in a brilliant way. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. That is true. And it does make you wonder, perhaps, actually, on this record, there are four or five different directions that he could have gone in. And he actually ended up going in the way we know he did. But perhaps he could have ended up going down a totally different path, which reminds me, I, I think you're right. Um, well, you are right. Obviously, he does play the piano on this album. And I was trying to figure out, I think it was the first time he played and I played the piano on a, on a song that had been on an officially released album. And I think it is. But uh, when I was searching up Bob Dylan piano, I came across uh, his, 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 his career with uh, Bobby V. And the fact that before he moved to New York, he, he supposedly played with Bobby V before The Shadows, I think. But uh, his, his, his nom de plume was Elston Gunn with three ends. And, um, you know, there, there you go. That's, that's another path he could have taken, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, no, I, that's right. I, I do wonder whether he was actually actively seeking for a new direction or whether it was just something that, that emerged. He had all these songs and he put them together, or whether he was actually consciously searching for, for a new way to go. It's hard to say, but it um, sounds like you probably agree with that, Rich. I think so. It's very difficult isn't it to to try and put yourself back in in the position i mean with all of these records really uh, up until the ones that we were actually alive for the releases of it's very difficult to put yourself in the the mind of someone who was listening to it as it was released and yeah it it, it, it does kind of go in all sorts of different directions i wonder if he's if he's kind of almost hedging his bets a little bit here, I could do this. I'm going to throw that kind of song on there. And it, it sounds a bit experimental in that kind of way. I mean, I don't know. There, there've been people though that have, that have suggested that this particular album, and I'm not entirely sure uh, whether I go along with this. I'd be interested to see what you think that the, this idea that it's actually a kind of denouncement almost of his former self, that this is the album where he is almost consciously trying to distance himself from that early folk singer, protest singer. And 
I think that the lyrics are suitably ambiguous in a lot of these songs where you could read it as, as being the case or you could perhaps disagree with that. But what do you reckon? I mean, that, that idea of him consciously moving on and making this almost a, a kind of declaration of that. Well, one thing I did think about uh, while listening to this, particularly having just listened to The Times We Are Changing, is this is really what we love about Dylan, isn't it? Or one of the many things we love about him. Because so many artists hit on a winning formula and then they play it for the rest of their careers. And sometimes that's with catastrophic results. And I'm not being judgmental, but the first band that came to mind was Oasis in that regard. But other times, very successfully and very... um, uh, you know, in a very uh, critically acclaimed way, like Springsteen was the first one that came to mind in that regard. I mean, I know he had his little jaunts off into Pete Seeger land and even even did a little bit of sl- very slightly electronic stuff, didn't he? So certainly synthesizer stuff in the, uh, the early 90s. But in the main, his kind of, his, his, his interest in his kind of narrative arcs, well, the fact that his songs have narrative arcs has been a, an absolute constant, hasn't it, throughout. Um, and the way that he wraps them up in this, this uh, real... Um, down-home rock and roll heart is uh, is also consistent across the vast majority of his work. But Dylan's never been interested in that to any extent, has he? And, and we've already said how much of a departure there was from freewheeling to the times we are changing. And this is another departure. And it's not just going back. It's, 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 it's retaining some of the things that we loved about freewheeling, but it's also forging on in totally new directions. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely on the button. Uh, although I've got on the question. What was the question? So the <laughs> it's all right. We're we're all about tangents. We we should. I think this is probably a good uh, a good opportunity to remind people of how this is relatively unscripted. In fact, very unscripted. And also as a reminder, I'll put it in as often as I can. We call this Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, as we've mentioned before, in kind of recognition of his of just the sheer cultural influence that he's, he he has. But we are not Dylanologists. We are not experts on Bob Dylan, and, and we are certainly not experts on uh, on the immortal bard. Um, and so, I think that's important to put out there. Uh, however, coming back off of that particular <laughs> tangent, the question was relating to this idea that people refer to this as being an album which is essentially almost like a farewell to what has been before, and this idea of moving on. And yeah. I think what you what you said about Bruce Springsteen is absolutely right. We could mention lots of other artists like this. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the first two Oasis albums and I would never badmouth them about those. But I think it just occurred to me while you were saying that actually is that particularly bands where there's a narrative or there's like a real sense of lyricism, I think probably have more opportunity to reinvent themselves. I think that the, the kind of lyrical peak, if, if that's the right phrase for Oasis, is probably on that second album. And then I don't know where you go there without a rhyming dictionary and just loud guitars, to be honest. But that's a conversation for another time, probably. But yeah, so... So, <laughs> so what? A, yeah, going back to that question then, this idea of him, of this being the, the shift, the move on. Yeah, I, I, I think, yes. Thank you for the uh, the reminder. I, I, I do um, I do agree that it is a departure, but I guess the thing that I'm I'm getting at is that almost every album's a departure, isn't it? And we've already seen it up to now. But one thing I did think about listening back to this was it's pretty explicit here, isn't it? I mean, it's not just the, the changes in style and tone, and the fact that he's not throwing in a Hattie Carroll two or something like that. It's also the fact he's actually telling you very directly. Um, I love, I love I Shall Be Free, number 10. The whole lot of it is just marvellous. But the, the opening verse is, um, 
something like what is it it ain't no use talking to me just the same as talking to you yeah exactly that's like if, obviously if, if, yeah yeah i mean if, if anyone still wanted to claim that he wanted to be the spokesman for a for a generation i think that that throws it back in their face really doesn't it yeah and then you've got all i want to do what i really want to do and, and obviously it ain't me babe's been interpreted for years hasn't it as a, a kiss off to his previous selves in his audience and so there are little little digs like that all the way through and you sort of think you combine that with the fact that he's he's writing very different sorts of songs we've already said he was criticized for not being political enough he was criticized for writing too many relationship songs which is just an utterly bizarre thing that you would ever imagine someone using as a criticism now but yeah it's all there he's, he's, he's clearly moved move, well he's not moving on he's moved on and unfortunately, few people weren't ready to accept that, were they? No, and I think this is what makes him so unique and so amazing. And when you compare him to, I mean, we mentioned people like Phil Oakes before, you could talk about people like Tom Paxton, you could talk about any of that kind of folk movement. They were, I mean, don't get me wrong, they were great songwriters, but they, they kind of churned out, for the most part, very, very similar albums. None of them developed with the same rate that Bob Dylan did and none of them kind of had that same kind of sense of innovation I think that that's really really important I mean yeah I mean we, we talked with just before we started uh, recording this actually about this idea of it being bookended it's it's quite sort of telling isn't it the way that it's structured that it does it starts out with all I really want to do and then of course it ends with it it's a me babe which as you've said is this this idea of the kiss off but I mean he has. He's he's moved on. He's he's completely he's completely changed. And I mean, one of the things that, if reading about this and the album and its reception at the time is to be believed, is that Chimes of Freedom was the one that really kind of made people think, "Wow, my goodness, this is something totally, totally different." I mean, you've got some thoughts on that, haven't you? In terms of uh, citing the Japanese movie industry uh, in everything. So <laughs> I didn't quite get it when you mentioned it before. So maybe if you can explain it again, I'll, uh, I'll have that moment of enlightenment. Yeah, well, you know, uh, of course, in no way being pretentious, I'd like to reference the, uh, the award-winning <laughs> uh, Japanese director, Kurosawa. <laughs> no, this is, a, this is a totally spurious point. But um, I, when I hear Chimes of Freedom, uh, it always reminds me of the opening scene of that uh, film, Rashomon, where you've got the, the, the strangers gathering together for shelter from a storm another illusion perhaps but, very good uh, yes i need yeah, to ring a go. bell at um, so um and you uh you say we throw this together <laughs> but um yeah yeah so you've got that that scene at the start and then you go from that uh, into this um meditation on the nature of truth and just that first scene and the way that the people are coming together it, it it's so redolent of that kind of image of this, this group of friends you know being caught in this in this storm in the same way and and the kind of thoughts that spark in that environment but i i didn't get any further than that because i couldn't link chimes of freedom to an examination of the nature of truth in any way but yeah it's something that always comes to mind for some reason well it's it's interesting that you talk about it being being spurious because I'm, I'm i'm gonna say i'm gonna come out with my own spurious take on chimes of freedom i mean i love chimes of freedom i love the birds version of it and I, I love the Bob Dylan version of it. But I wonder at this point whether we've got the influence of LSD. I mean, it, it's a very kind of psychedelic song, isn't it? It's a very, it's, it's moved on from, from, from what he's, he's been doing before. And I mean, we've, we've made this link with the idea of Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. And I mean, the way that you, the words just seem to pour out, the lyrics just pour out. But in this 
absolutely, I mean, I'm going to sound very pretentious here, but this absolutely kind of fascinating bombardment of images that we get, and none of them quite add up, and none of them quite make sense, I don't think. And there's a big part of me that doesn't really want to make sense of Bob Dylan's lyrics, because I think it's, I get a real sense of it. This is someone who is, who's kind of in love with language. Um, and again, that sounds horrendous, doesn't it? But this idea that he, he, there's a genuine sense of excitement about what words can do. And I think that that's one of the things that reminds me of Shakespeare, because again, you've, you've got someone back 400 years ago who's playing with language in ways that it's never been used before. And I mean, my spurious claim here, I've not said anything that hasn't been said so far, is that I think in both of those cases, Shakespeare and Dylan, I mean, the, the doors of perception um, have very much been opened. And uh, I wonder if they had some chemical enhancement. I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is, uh, this is Dylan on acid, okay, uh, at this moment in, in, in time, potentially. And I was reading something about how um, there are those people who assert that, that drugs or psychedelics were actually more prevalent in the Elizabethan era than uh, than than people might previously have thought. Now, I'm not, I'm not in any way disputing the way that these two guys were geniuses, but um, I wonder if they maybe, uh, maybe had a little help from their friends to, uh, to, to quote another... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> off, Ring the bell off again. Ignored, off ignored group. Okay. <laughs> Ring them bells. That's another one for you. <laughs> uh, the, the, yeah, I, I always have a little bit of a problem with that. And there's, a, there's a line in... Uh, Robert Shelton's book, uh, which always stuck with me, where he talks about, he's, he's on the next album, I think, actually, or, or even Highway 61, and he's talking about interpreting the lyrics. And he says, you know, all people say this is acid music. And he says something like, you know, you don't need to be drunk to appreciate Dylan Thomas's work. And, and the other thing, of course, is that how many, how many millions of people have, have been high and not written Chimes of Freedom, which, of course, is, you know. Um, so what I'm, saying, what I'm getting at is I think the the genius and the, the creativity is within him, isn't it? Whether that unlocked it, as you say, possibly. But I, I don't know. I, wouldn't, I, I do wonder if sometimes the drug influence is overplayed in, uh, in pop music generally. Good example, actually, being that obscure group you just mentioned, because once the Beatles hit LSD, their output collapsed, didn't it? And it was only when we went, we went back to, to India and we were, were off drugs because they couldn't get hold of them that actually they started writing all the songs that were on the White Album. So I wonder, I, I wonder. I mean, who knows? By way of a disclaimer, I would say that I wasn't, I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from either of those two writers. I'm not trying to say that it was, uh, it was just the drugs that did it. But I, I, I think it's, it's such a departure in this instance. I, I wonder if there, there might have been some, some kind of other, other kind of influence, I suppose. But yeah, it's, um, you're absolutely right, going back to that. I mean, how many musicians imbibed in all sorts of substances and didn't write amazing songs? And then how many people imbibed in all sorts of substances and just didn't do anything other than i don't know went home and ate crisps or something like that i mean that's uh, that's kind of how these things work really isn't it yeah okay so i mean what do we so we normally talk about kind of highlights and lowlights and i mean these might well be lyrics it might well be performances of particular songs what what are what are your thoughts on that then mark for this album well you've mentioned already that to Ramona is a beautiful song. I absolutely agree. There's so many things that, that come through on that. I mean, first of all, it is just gorgeous to listen to. I think it's for the easiest listen on the album by, by a country mile. The other thing I love about it is the first couple of verses are so sensual. And it's, it's, it's just not something I ever associate with Bob Dylan at all. I mean, listen to Leonard Cohen quite often. You sort of 
get the impression that you wouldn't necessarily have wanted to introduce him to your date, would you? <laughs> but um, you very rarely, <laughs> you might not have wanted to introduce your date to Bob Dylan, but for different reasons. Well, yeah, this is uh, <laughs> the jury's out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but this one, it's just gorgeous, isn't it? I mean, what is it? The um, is it softly your watery eyes and all this sort of stuff? Like just, just, just lovely. But then as it goes on, it's a really beautiful encapsulation of that kind of conversation that I'm sure we've all had where you're, you're trying to offer um, platonic comfort. There's these kind of sensual undertones. In the end, you realize that actually, you know, there's nothing you can do for another person in the end except be there. And it's, it's up to them to find their own way. But I just find it beautifully encapsulated. So definitely a big, big highlight for me. On the, the low, low, low light, I think it's pretty clear. Even Dylan himself admitted a couple of years later that Ballard in plain view was probably a misstep. It's one of those ones where you just wonder what, what was he thinking really. But of course, I mean, it was important to him in the context of what he'd been going through in his personal life. He wanted to put it on there that he probably shouldn't have. And, and, and even as a piece of music, I don't see a lot of merit in it. Certainly not at the length it is. No, I mean, th- I think this is the first time that, uh, that this has happened. But I'm going to go ahead and pretty much just agree with you on both the highlight and the low light, which doesn't normally happen whenever we talk about Bob Dylan albums we normally have significant differences of opinion but I mean I really like Chimes of Freedom but I think you've kind of hit it on the head there with uh, with regard to to Ramona I mean it's just it's just such a lovely song apparently it's it's Lucinda Williams's favorite Dylan song as well which I thought was quite interesting I mean obviously she's a an amazing songwriter and, and, and takes a lot of influence from Dylan as well as a lot from other people but yeah she kind of waxes lyrical about this song and so I put to Ramona definitely up there I've already mentioned several times Chimes of Freedom but I mean I I love the birds version of it so much I, I still probably like the birds version of, of Chimes of Freedom more than the uh, the original as it were but that doesn't detract from the fact that it's actually the amazing song. I hear a lot of kind of Towns Van Zandt in To Ramona as well. I mean, he does a song, oh, I forget what it's called now, but you can, you can imagine this just kind of being playing uh, kind of in a, in a sort of Spanish-American way down in a Pueblo somewhere. It's got that kind of lilt to it and that kind of sort of waltz-like feel. And I think that, that it, it's really pretty captivating. Yeah, what else? Uh, I mean, I've, I already mentioned as well, uh, It Ain't Me, Babe. I'd love the Johnny Cash version of it. I do actually quite like the Bob Dylan version, but kind of Cash got there first in this sense. Um, and I'd agree with, with Ballad in Plain D. I mean, I was listening to it today and it's just, it meanders, doesn't it? But it doesn't meander in a Desolation Row kind of way. And it doesn't meander even in a, even in, I mean, we, we kind of criticised We've got on our side uh, last last podcast for the simple reason that it goes on a bit, but I mean, there's a thread that goes through that one. I think which which works, dare I say, a lot better than than Ballad in Plain D, which it just doesn't really go anywhere, does it? I mean, have I missed something? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many times he played it. I, I I mean, it certainly hasn't been played for years. If you ever did play it live, someone might correct me on that, but. Yeah, I, I can't really see very much uh, to redeem it. And I think that's, that's another thing that probably put me off this album uh, when I first heard it, because I've already mentioned my bitter disappointment about my back pages not being a, a pop classic on this album. And in short order, it's followed by this one. 
although I don't believe you is a is a great song, which is in between those two or or next to them, I forget. But that, that is another song that I love, and although it's not a cover version per se, the fact that he reinvents it on the '66 tour is uh, is so great as well. So yeah, I do I do I do agree that there's so many highlights on this album. But yeah, no, I've got no argument with Ballad in Plain D as a as a misstep. And I think I think I think it's his first misstep actually, particularly when you think of the songs he had in the can that he could have put on there instead. I don't think there's anything comparable on the previous records because even something like the first I Shall Be Free. It's clearly doing what it says on the tin, isn't it? It's a nonsense song. And you can you can take it or leave it on that basis. With God on our side, I don't particularly like, but you know, it's got its it it stands on its own merits. But this one, yeah, I I, I think this is his first big uh, big error, as I say. Yeah, well it, it it's a song that doesn't seem to quite know what it is or what it's trying to do, doesn't it? Which which with Bob Dylan is is so rare, as you say. I mean yeah, I do. I do love the way that um, I don't believe you um, gets reinvented. I mean, and it does. It gets reinvented as a kind of proper rock and roll song, doesn't it? Really, and it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Which tour is that on again? Is that in the seventies or is it earlier than that? Well, he definitely does it on uh, the '66 tour, doesn't he? There's a, there's a great bit on the one that was released officially, where was he says something like, um, "This is called I Don't Believe You." It used to go like that, and now it goes like this. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it works. And 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 it's one of the. I mean, I always think that's the that's the, the mark of a really great song is when it can be done in so many different ways. I mean, we talked last time about one too many mornings being being versatile enough to work in that in that kind of way as well. And so that's another great example. Yeah. So we're probably around about the point where we start thinking about wrapping stuff up. Actually. So I mean, one of the features that we do here is the. Last thoughts. So, last thoughts on another side. I mean, um, what, what what are your last thoughts on this one, then, Mark? Well, I do really just want to flag among my favourite Bob Dylan lyrics before we finish, uh, which is in "I Shall Be Free." I think I'm liberal to a degree. I want everyone to be free. But if you think I'll let Barry Goldwater, <laughs> you never. <will. laughs> I mean, that's just 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 brilliant. As I said, I love that song. About those lines in particular, uh, never fail to raise a smile. But yeah, as we've said, I think I, I, I definitely bought into the idea of it as a transitional album before. I think it suffers from from the comparison with bringing it all back home, which we'll talk about next time, but pretty much an alloy genius. And also the peak of his previous self with times we are changing. So that's still true. But having listened to it over and over this time, I think that it is still a really listenable uh, record that I've probably underappreciated um, over time. And I think if it had come out before Times Vera Changing, probably it would have a, a, a stronger reputation than it does. But uh, it suffers from that sequence in his in his back catalogue. But definitely very much enjoyed listening back to it this time. Yeah, I think I think you're right about the uh, the sequencing of it. It's funny, isn't it? Barry Goldwater was the was he did he run against Kennedy or did he run against Johnson? I can't remember. He was the one that wanted to like nuke Hanoi, wasn't he? Or something. Like that. I mean. <laughs> I, from from memory, I think he was he was massively massively hard line. So it's kind of it sounds like a throwaway line, but I mean there's a there's a serious undercurrent there. I mean I forget now which election it was. That he, I think he might have run against Johnson. I think it was in '64. I think so. Uh, certainly he was certainly he was a candidate. Was he was the was he the actual Republican candidate at the end? I think he was because I think it was a Johnson landslide, wasn't it? I mean, partly off the back of the the the, the Kennedy assa- uh, assassination, but from memory, they had a um, 
they had a very clever, the Democrats had a very clever um, advert where it, it was like a countdown. And it was a child that was like, uh, you know, when you get, dan- you know, when you get dandelions and you blow the like leaf bits off them. Yeah. And they were, and, and it effectively you had this countdown and then it was just bang, don't vote for Barry Goldwater or something. <laughs> like those kind of lines. So, so yeah, I mean, he, uh, yeah. So, I mean, he was, he was a hot topic. History's never very kind to the, the, the sort of also rounds, is it? And so I suppose Goldwater has become an also round, but, um, there's Stephen King in that book about the Kennedy assassination. I'm pretty sure that that Goldwater becomes president in it, and he there's all sorts of time travel and stuff like this, and so the protagonist is able to go to, well, it goes it ends up in the world as it has become after the Goldwater administration have nuked Hanoi, and there's kind of like mutant people running around and all sorts of terrible stuff. So. Um, so yeah, it, it is a brilliantly throwaway line, but uh, with much darker kind of connotations as well. The thing I love about it as well is that I had no idea, of course, who Barry Goldwater was the first time I heard it, but it still made me laugh. And the, the more I found out about him, the, the, the more it makes me laugh. Uh, so he definitely had something right. <laughs> so my, uh, my last thoughts then on, on this record. I think there's a few, I mean, there's a few things. I think you've got here... And whether or not much has been made of this in the past, I'm not too sure. But I think that this is a very, very influential album for singer-songwriters in general. I can hear a lot of stuff within these songs that I think people picked up on and people kind of ran with. I mean, I really like the the singer-songwriter Sixto Rodriguez, who, um, who was the guy that was completely unknown and was enormous in South Africa. But he had no idea that he was uh, enormous in South Africa. It's like they made that documentary Sugar Man about him, which is just lovely because eventually, at the end of the 90s, he goes over to South Africa and, and he's this huge, great hero. But Gypsy Girl, the, the sort of phrasing on that is so redolent of, of what Sixto Rodriguez does and the kind of imagery that he uses. I mean, Rodriguez didn't really move on very much from there. That was kind of his his sort of point of, of reference, I suppose. But I mean, I, I hear a lot of that um, in that particular song. And then there's the stuff, like, I mean, I love John Prine. I mean, obviously John Prine, astonishing uh, songwriter, but the humour, I think, really comes across. I mean, the you've got in I Shall Be Free, She's Funny, Wants My Money, Calls Me Honey, for example. I mean, I don't think that that's one of those kind of, you know, social consciousness uh, moments is it that's just like a funny rhyme and at the end of um, illegal smile which is a john prine song he says well done hot dog bun my sister's a nun and uh, I, I i just think that he got that from bob dylan clearly and if, if if dylan hadn't put something on record that was as silly as that then i think maybe people like john prine wouldn't have maybe felt empowered to do so and my other sort of final thought here occurred to me when listening to All I Really Want to Do. And he says, I don't want to track or trace you. Now, I think Bob Dylan's a genius. And I was listening to this this week and I was thinking, could he be that much of a genius that this line's actually that prescient that he's almost looking into a crystal ball and had foreseen the uh, pandemic, the global pandemic that uh, that ravaged and is con- currently ravaging the world 55 uh, years later. Could he potentially, in saying, I don't want to track or trace you, 
be kind of foreshadowing some kind of criticism of the the NHS track and trace app. I don't know if that was what occurred to me. That's probably about me done though. Well, if nothing else, he's, he's, you've dated us there. Sometimes <laughs> 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 in history. Uh, who knows? You, uh, well, you know, we probably do know, don't we, actually? Yeah, I guess we're ready to move on to bringing it all back home. And uh, I've got to say, I'm really excited. A little bit apprehensive that I won't love it as much as I think I love it, but very, very excited to get onto it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. Please join us next time when we'll be discussing bringing it all back home. You can find us on Twitter, search at Dylan American. And please do post any questions that you'd like us to respond to.